This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal, host of the Bailey Gifford Prize podcast, which is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Welcome to episode two. This time we're joined by Sir Anthony Beaver, the first winner of the Samuel Johnson Prize back in 1999, and Margaret Macmillan, winner of the prize in 2002. For those who don't know anything about these books, let's start with The Monumental Stalingrad, a book that transformed the reputation of Sir Anthony Beaver, and a book that made a huge impact on military history and how widely accessible it could be. The battle for Stalingrad was, of course, a turning point in the Second World War. Had Germany prevailed, it would have been a considerable victory for Hitler. Defeat led to the complete destruction of the Sixth Army, the Wehrmacht's largest force. The impact was enormous. It eroded the invincibility of the German army and marked a resurgence of confidence in the Red Army. And in Peacemakers, Margaret Macmillan more than matches the Herculean task ahead of leaders of Britain, France, Italy and the US between January and June 1919, six months in Paris, in which they decided the outcome of the war they had just won against Germany. The book also changed the way we read history. And this, incidentally, was one no one wanted to publish. One reject letter said no one was interested in reading about a group of old white men sitting around a table talking. Big mistake. I wonder if that editor is still working in publishing. A very warm welcome to Margaret Macmillan and Sir Anthony Viva. Hello. Hi. Um, really great to have you here. Um, let's talk, let's go back to uh, winning the prize and what difference it made to your careers and how you thought about writing, writing books. Uh, Sir Anthony, you first, since you won the very first Samuel Johnson Prize, which then, of course, morphed and became the Bailey Gifford. How, what was that moment like? Can you remember it? Um, vividly. Um, in fact, I don't think anyone has made quite as a useless uh, an acceptance speech as um, I was, because <laughs> I was literally quite um, flabbergasted. I'd assumed that it, um, Ian Kershaw was going to win it with his um, bio- superb biography of Hitler. Um, and, you know, I was there. It was very nice to be there and all the rest of it. And I wasn't expecting anything. It was only at one moment um, in the speech that suddenly my editor uh, realized from one particular phrase who the winner was likely to be. And she looked at me and I, I felt like sort of slightly like a rabbit caught in the headlights. Uh, and I'm afraid that was very ref- much reflected in uh, my, as I say, <laughs> pathetic acceptance speech. Uh, but no, it was um, overwhelming and um, deeply uh, exciting. And from that point of view, even though one was uh, completely uh, lost in a way, uh, it was also rather extraordinary because um, it, I was purely by chance. I also won the uh, Wolfson Prize for History and the Hawthorne Prize, all announced in the same week um, but by an extraordinary chance. So, of course, Goodness that had me. a cumulative effect. Uh, but it was obviously the Samuel Johnson and being a new prize at that particular stage with a wonderful anonymous donor backing it. Um, and that's, you know, triggered uh, a huge amount of coverage and uh, and so forth. So one was taken aback. But I think what was intriguing in a way was that nobody had expected the book to take off uh, in the way that it did. When they had the meeting at Penguin to discuss what the print run should be, Helen Fraser, who was the managing director, said, I think this book might just go over, might go over 10,000 copies. And the marketing department rolled their eyes at the ceiling and all the rest of it. Because <laughs> in those days, uh, a book of military history, which did well, might just get to six or six and a half thousand copies. 
And what none of us realized was how actually history had been changing without us realizing it, or rather expectations of history, in that there was a much greater interest in the personal, the individual, rather than the collective version of history, the top down, which had been very much the case in military history. And interestingly, the great, to whom we all bow down, Michael Howard, the professor Michael Howard, uh, rightly underlined that actually it was now the history of war, uh, which was very different in a way to military history because one was talking about the civilians, one was talking about the soldiers caught up in an overwhelming, uh, an overpowering situation where they had no control over their own fate. And I think that seems to have been what grabbed people's imagination because in the past, as I say, it was much more sort of generals or staff officers trying to impose an artificial order uh, on something that was deeply chaotic. Well, we will come back to the detail yeah. of what you're, what you're saying there. Margaret, do you remember uh, your name being called out? I do. I, it was a very, very long evening. And I remember, I remember we were at, I think, some, the Institute of Engineers. And there was, I still remember there was this huge piece of inedible fish sitting in front of me. And I just looked at it and felt sick the whole time. <laughs> I couldn't eat a mouthful. It's probably delicious, but it, I just was miserable. And my, my book was the last one to be discussed. And by that point, I was in such a state of misery. I just wanted to go home. And I was there with my sister and my brother-in-law and my mother. And we were sitting there, and they started to talk about my book, and my sister and my mother got quite excited, and they said, we think you've got it. And I said, no, I just want to get out of here. Don't even talk to me. I, I was utterly miserable. And I was sure, in fact, of the, the book that I thought was going to win, and rather like Anthony, there was a book that was a clear favorite, and that was Roy Jenkins' biography of Winston Churchill. And I think most people thought it was going to win. And so when I heard my name, I, I simply didn't believe it. I mean, I just sat there. And I think, Anthony, if your speech was bad, I suspect mine was even worse. <laughs> I was there, Margaret. I was there. And actually, I can tell you, yours was a lot better. <laughs> well, I felt complete. I was completely dumbfounded. And I was. I mean, I was really an unknown. In fact, there was a headline, which I wish I'd cut out in one of the English papers, possibly the Daily Mail, which said, little-known Canadian Pips Jenkins. <laughs> And Wonderful. I've always wished, I've treasured that moment. I know, the little-known Canadian. Little I think that's known, a wonderful. Little-known Canadian. Well, I'd only written one book before, and this had been a labor of love. And, and you mentioned I hadn't been able to get it published. And finally, my publisher, John Murray, took it, by which I, which I will always bless them. And, and it, it got, won the prize. And, and I think it really it made a huge difference to me. I think I became less little-known, a little bit better known. And, and then I found I didn't have trouble getting books published. Mm. So you both defied the odds. And, and I, I wonder, Margaret, let's just stay with you for a moment. The, um, the, the fact that publishers were reluctant to take this on, why were you passionate about this? What is it about this particular subject that, that continued to compel you and you continue to write even though you didn't have a publisher who was going to publish it? It was curious, but I was teaching history in a, what was then a polytechnic, later became a university in Toronto, and I had to teach everything. So I taught Chinese history, I taught African history, I taught military history, I did a history of war and society, I taught history of international relations, and I kept on coming across the Paris Peace Conference, and I thought so many of the things I'm talking about from China, because it's very important for China, to Vietnam, to parts of Africa, to the Middle East, to, of course, Europe, to North America, were discussed there. And I thought someone must have written a big book on it. And then I started looking, and there were monographs. So you get Romania at the Peace Conference or 
Albania and the peace conference or whatever. And you also got sort of most of the focus was on Europe. And I thought, you know, someone should write a book that just covers the world and, and shows how important it was for so many parts of the world. And nobody did. So I thought, well, maybe I'll try. And so I think I spent about 20 years collecting material, writing bits. And as I've said, trying to find publishers. Anthony Beaver, the thing that uh, I'd like to get you to talk about really is is the, the, the turning point for you in terms of the research. The fall of the Soviet Union meant that you had access, access to particular archive, which allowed you to, to write the book that you explain so well actually changed the way we read military history. Well, as in love, certainly in publishing, timing is everything. And I was phenomenally lucky. Uh, there's no doubt about it because... When I agreed to do the book, and the idea wasn't mine, it was my publisher's, and it was uh, uh, an extraordinary moment when uh, she suddenly came up with the idea, and our children were tiny, very young, and it would mean, I knew it was going to mean abandoning my wife, Artemis, with the children for months at a time, or in the US, uh, I'm sorry, and in Russia and in uh, Germany. Uh, and so I started to sound sort of um, saying, you know, I'm not quite sure about this. And all the rest of my agent kicked me under the table, basically saying, this is a brilliant idea. For God's sake, go for it. But at that stage, I'd already been in, worked in the um, Russian archives when they first opened in 92. Uh, on a book which we did together, Paris After Liberation. And I knew then there was just so much material um, that one was going to have to spend a huge amount of time. But I didn't know what material I could actually get at in the military archives because Pikoya, who was the minister of the archives appointed by Yeltsin, had forced the civilian archives... Um, to open up. But the military archives at that stage hadn't opened up. And then by an extraordinary um, coup or uh, stroke of luck for me, um, it was announced that the military archives were going to open up too. So we had to go negotiate at the Ministry of Defense in Moscow. Uh, and uh, the colonel there, well, I will never forget Colonel Romanstiev, who's sort of big burly type and uh, a large broken nose and all the rest of it, was sort of saying, uh, we have a simple rule in our archives. You tell us the subject, we choose the files. Uh, <laughs> and there was no point trying to say, well, hang on, that's not quite how it works in other archives, Colonel. Um, but that was sort of their basic attitude. And I said to him, um, well, you know I'm wanting to write about Stalingrad. And I had to give you an idea of the sort of material. In the German archives in Freiburg, the most interesting documents are those reports written by outsiders, i.e. doctors and priests attached to the German army, because there you had the real observation of the effect of on humans, on individuals, of such an appalling battle. Um, roar of laughter from the Russian colonel, no priests in the Red Army. And I said, no, I know there were no priests in the Red Army, but maybe the commissar, maybe the political department reports. And that was actually where the gold was. And the gold from those political officers' reports was critical because they were dispatching reports every day that were completely and utterly uh, honest. That's right. I mean, it was one of the few times when Stalin was so desperate to know what was going on there because he didn't trust the generals. He thought that, in fact, they were probably losing the city, but didn't dare tell him. Um, and so from that point of view, there was tremendous pressure. So in these reports, and there were between uh, 20, well, between 18 and about 24 pages per day flown back each night uh, to Moscow. Um, there were the details of the genuinely heroic, uh, but also the scandalous, whether it was drunkenness of commanders or soldiers crossing over to the enemy or whatever. And you knew that this was the real, the real stuff and stuff which you could really uh, rely on. Um, so, I mean, you know, that was an astonishingly exciting moment. I was staying with actually the Canadian um, political attaché who became a great friend, uh, Chris Alexander. And 
and um, um, he said, oh, by the way, do you want to um, uh, ring Artemis in London on the first evening? And I rang Artemis. I don't believe it. We've been actually allowed near this staff or whatever. And he was immediately signaling, <laughs> sort of cutting across the throat. So, of course, I'd forgotten that being a diplomat, of course, his telephone was bound to be bugged. Yeah, and he said, you know, even if we go out, um, in the evenings or whatever, just don't talk about it with anybody uh, because we were able to start getting at this stuff even though they weren't, they'd presented the material with um, slips of paper and it was only where there was a slip of paper where we were actually allowed to read the page. Everything else was forbidden. So it was an extraordinary system um, of um, feeding. They had no experience of um, foreign historians coming into their archives. And presumably that's changed an awful lot. Well, I mean, Sid said, I mean, Catherine Meridel um, found suddenly the door was slammed in her face when she started on her superb book, um, Ivan's War, when she, she couldn't get into the main archive at Podolsk. Uh, and we had warnings in advance. There's a wonderful Swedish historian called Lennart Summerson uh, who suddenly got in touch with me. This was even before uh, Catherine had that saying, do you realize that the KGB are now checking on every file taken out by foreign historians? Oh. Or uh, rather the FSB as it had become. And, and, and Margaret, in, in your case... You, you talked about the, the single monographs that existed, but presumably you'd read, even at that early stage of research, Harold Nicholson and John Maynard Keynes, who were reporting on the peace conference. And did you think at the time, I, I actually want to do something that will counter what their reports were, were indicating? I didn't start out thinking that. Um, I was very well taught uh, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto. And what my history professors always said is you have to follow the evidence. Mm. And I started out with certain ideas. I started out thinking that the Treaty of Versailles was disastrous and was responsible for the outbreak of the Second World War. And the more I read, the more I thought it's not as simple as that. And I like to think I followed the evidence and made up my own mind. And in the end, I came to think, I mean, Harold Nicholson was enormously persuasive. I don't entirely think that his diary was actually written all at the time. I mean, he himself says that he made brief notes and then he expanded it. And so things that are written after, I, I, I take with slight grain of salt because... They know how things have turned out, and so they tend to be right when they're, you know, earlier on. And, and Keynes, I begin, began to think, and he himself pulled back a bit from it, but I began to think he was actually, um, he was completely over the top in the economic consequences of the peace. I think he portrayed all the peacemakers as not knowing what they were doing. They were all idiots. And I think it was a deeply unfair portrayal is what I came to think. And I may be wrong, but certainly what I came to think. And, and so I did I th like to think, follow the evidence. And, and what I came to the conclusion, which isn't terribly exciting, was it wasn't such a bad job given the circumstances. Uh, OK, so not such a bad job given the circumstances, but, but also your choice to focus on the individuals in terms of the portraits that you, that you draw of each of the key, uh, the, the key leaders at the time. D did you think that, did you consciously think that you were going to do that or did that come as a result of the research? It, it was both, I think. I mean, I think one of the things I'd learned from teaching, and I was usually teaching students who weren't majoring in history. So they were people who were doing nursing or engineering or, or whatever. And so I had to get them interested. So I learned to tell them stories and they want to know about the people. And, and in fact, so do I. And so there was that. But I also thought, in fact, what mattered a lot at the peace conference were the re interrelationships between the key individuals. I mean, they were there. It will never happen again when the leading world statesmen, or many of them, are in one place for six months. And they have tea with each other, they chat to each other, 
there's a wonderful series, the various sort of verbatim accounts, but the best for, for the gossip is the Italian one, who wrote down sort of how they compared dreams and how they talked about when they couldn't sleep. And so I thought you had to concentrate on the individuals because they were actually key. But I also thought it was a very useful device for trying to get people interested in the story. Uh, and also, the, the, there, there are so many, um, I mean... You use the word gossipy, but there are so many barbed comments about the the characteristics of these politicians, which makes it an incredibly juicy history book to read. And 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 I read somewhere that you said that you see history as a branch of literature rather than science. And I'd quite like to explore this with the, with both of you because it seems to me that there are novelistic approaches in both of your books. Why why is it that you think that history is much more literature than science? Because we're trying to create a picture of the past. I mean, I think we have to, again, the evidence is terribly important. And I think we have to we have to as, find out as much as we can about the past. And that includes what people were thinking, but it also includes statistics. It includes what people were eating, what people were, how they were earning their livings. All of that matters. And, and of course, we have to understand that. But I don't think it's a science in the sense of we, we can't ever, we can't know everything about the past. And we have to, in a sense, use our imaginations to fill in what we know. But I'm also trying to make people aware. And I think this is what Antony does so wonderfully. I mean, I think in Stalingrad and his other books is what was it like to be there? What 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 was, it, what was it like if you were there in Stalingrad fighting house to house and trying to get across that river? Or what was it like when you were at Arnhem? And I think this is enormously important because I think what we're trying to do is make people interested in the past. I mean, I think we have to be very, very careful not to impose our own views. Of course, we have our own views, but I think we have to be very careful to try and make people aware of the complexity of the past, but also make them aware that these were living, breathing human beings. Uh, this is terribly important, sorry. I mean, um, Norman Davis rightly, um, I think, said about the problems of imposing the moral values and judgments of today on an earlier period. Uh, he referred to it as psychological anachronism. I'm not sure if that's exactly the right phrase, but it's sort of roughly the right area anyway. Uh, and why it's so important to recreate that past, particularly for people uh, who simply find it impossible to imagine what totalitarian warfare was like uh, when we're living in a sort of uh, post-military health and safety environment. Um, and I think that we need to, and in a way, the, the duty of the historian surely is to understand and convey that understanding rather than trying to impose a sort of an analysis or a moral judgment. I mean, the German idea of, um, you know, thesis and then you have to prove your thesis and all the rest of it, actually, I think is very corrupt in its, um, if you like, in its consequences. Uh, one's only got to look at, say, Goldhagen's willing execute, Hitler's willing executioners, where he had a very powerful, strong thesis about the Germans were uh, instinctive or naturally anti-Semitic. Well, actually, that's absolute rubbish because under uh, Frederick the Great, German, Prussia was probably one of the least anti-Semitic countries in Europe. What you need to understand is why it developed in the way that it did. Uh, and that's why I agree 100% uh, with this idea that uh, history is a branch of literature because it can never be tested in a laboratory or anything like that. Uh, so from that point of view, I think that it's actually one of the great advantages of British historians and, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon historians historians of the way that history has descended in this country from, say, Gibbon, um, and therefore a recognition of, of literature uh, more than anything else. Margaret, you've you referred a couple of times to how much you were informed by being a teacher of history. Uh, uh, Sir Anthony, I wonder if you then think about the way in which you are a, a, a historian now is utterly informed by the fact that you were a military officer. 
Well, that doesn't mean that you you can only be uh, you can only write about military history. I mean, for example, Catherine Meridale, who I mentioned, has never, um, but her book on um, Ivan's war was absolutely excellent. Uh, what I think was dangerous is when you have people coming in from other disciplines and they want to try and impose a certain ideological grid on a subject which they don't fully understand or even really attempt to understand. Uh, and then you do, I think, get a, a, a serious distortion, uh, and that is, that is a problem. But I mean, I think that. Um, Lynn MacDonald on the First World War, you know, uh, you can still have, uh, and one of the reasons, let's face it, why I think women um, didn't go in for military history in the past was, frankly, military history in the past was very boring indeed. Um, but once it then changed, as I was mentioning, of Michael, well, as Michael Howard's comment, that it was the history of warfare, and it is about the humans and the civilians and everybody else, then there's been a far greater interest from uh, women historians coming into the, the subject. How, how much, uh, Margaret Macmillan, uh, were you informed by uh, being the great granddaughter of David Lloyd George? I mean, did you, you know, key figure in this whole story? What, what d- did that propel you in 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 your passion that you you talked about with with this particular period? I don't think it did. In fact, if anything, it rather discouraged me because the last thing I wanted to be seen as was the great great granddaughter and people saying, "Well, she would say that, wouldn't she?" And I didn't know him. He died a year after I was born. Of course, I knew my grandmother and my great aunt and and my great uncles. And I tended to, in fact, to slightly irritate them when I was a teenager and studying history, saying, well, you know, I think he made mistakes, which didn't go down well in the family. (laughs) But I I actually came out of university with with a sort of accepting a view, which I think was quite prevalent and probably still is, that he was very tricky and had no moral core. And so I started really my research with a very skeptical view of Lloyd George. And I came around to thinking, in fact that he did have a moral core, that he was a supreme negotiator, and I think that is a very important quality to have, that he was very good at bringing the different sides together. But I was so leery of being identified as the great-granddaughter, I didn't tell my publishers, who were a little bit annoyed. They said, you might have mentioned it. It would have been good for the publicity. (laughs) And and, and also, I suppose that there is also this this idea that... um, to try and take what what it seems to me these books both these books do is to is is to absolutely categorically state that history is not just a subject that is rarefied and for the academy only and to to make it something that is completely accessible. I think it's so important and I think the danger certainly more in North America than here is that so many history faculties are returning inwards. And they've been doing and they've been encouraging their students to do smaller and smaller subjects and writing in very arcane and, and quite frankly, very boring language. Not not all. I mean, this is a wild generalization. But I do think, I mean, history belongs to us all. And if we as professional historians, and that doesn't mean you have to be in a university, but we as people who've been trained to do history don't speak to the general public, then others will. And they may say things that are really quite dangerous and misleading. Anthony, do you want to say something? No, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think it's very dangerous. And actually, I entirely agree. I mean, um, Neil Ferguson was talking about the other day about uh, uh, the dangers in um, uh, in the United States that uh, partly the influence of identity politics, that everybody has to go in for these sort of um, uh, monographs on different aspects or experiences of individual groups or small people. He said, it's, it's, it's frightening. Who is going to take on the big subjects in the future? Uh, one of the dangers which 
which worries me, particularly in this country, is the collapse of foreign language teaching. How are people going to um, hit the archives in, in, in foreign countries unless they've got the, unless they've got the languages? Mm. So from that point of view, it is, it is I think, um, slightly worrying for the future. Mm. What, what, Margaret Macmillan, when you talked about um, how you'd set out thinking that the Treaty of Versailles was a complete mistake and, and, and that it was, compl- it was deeply flawed and led to the, 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 the Second World War, what were, the, what were the individual things that you learned in your research that made you think this is going to be a revisionist history of what's already existing? I didn't realise was, I was a revisionist until Andrew Roberts reviewed it and called me a bold revisionist, <laughs> uh, actually. I just thought I'd written a book. But I, I, I suppose I did because what I thought, I looked at the treaty and I thought, well, first of all, Germany lost the war which later on many people in Germany said they hadn't, but they had. I mean, it's quite clear that they had lost the First World War. And when you lose a war, you don't get a very nice treaty. And secondly, I I began to realize that there had been a concerted effort. It was called Campaign Innocence, actually, on the behalf of, of the Germans, I think led by some of the elites and people in the Foreign Office, to undermine the validity of the treaty, to say that it was terribly harsh. I don't think it was that bad a treat. If you actually look at its individual clauses, it was a mess. They threw it together much too quickly and nobody read it through. And even the reparations in the end didn't turn out to be as punitive as many people later on came to believe. And so I thought I really, again, it's the question of following the evidence. And so I, I did change my mind about the treaty. I mean, no one who loses, if you go to court and you lose a court case, you don't come out saying, gosh, that judge was fair. You know, he was quite right to find against me. Nobody who loses likes it. And what it has struck me more since I wrote the book is that Germany was treated much worse in 1945 after the end of the Second World War. We never hear anything about how unfair that was. I mean, there are other reasons for that, of course. But and, uh, Anthony, you talked uh, in, in some detail about the access to the the, uh, the Soviet archives that you had. Tell me the extraordinary story about Vinrich Baer, because you interviewed him and you talk about this in, in the preface to your, your latest, um, the latest edition of Stalingrad. Well, Vinrich Baer was a young panzer officer who um, fought in North Africa. Uh, he had the Knight's Cross and all the rest of it. And uh, both Manstein, General Field Marshal von Manstein, and General Paulus, the commander of the Sixth Army, were in agreement that Hitler was refusing to listen to any of the generals, saying you've got to allow the Sixth Army to break out uh, from this encirclement at Stalingrad, otherwise it'll be completely destroyed. And Hitler, in his obsession, was refusing to allow anybody to retreat because he could not acknowledge that somehow they had reached that cumulative point, that point of uh, basically of uh, um, overextension, overexpansion and all the rest of it. And so they realized you can't send in a general. So they picked a young panzer officer, sort of romantic German ideal. And Vinrich Baer was, uh, he said, I, I'd been um, a supporter of Hitler. He said, I wasn't a member of the Nazi party or a Nazi or anything like that. I'd been a supporter of Hitler. And here I was, you know, flown out. And I arrived at the Volkshansa in East Prussia uh, and taken in to see Hitler. And he described the way that Hitler played the whole meeting basically pretending that he was entirely on Bear's side and he was outraged or whatever. And so he would then ask about, uh, ask Goering about the figures of the deliveries of the supplies when, in fact, all of these soldiers were, were starving and they had nothing like that. Bear then um, was realized that, in fact, uh, Hitler was just playing a game and uh, sort of pretending to be on the side of the soldiers and attacking the Luftwaffe. And, of course, the Luftwaffe were... Uh, Goering was coming up with the figures of what they were delivering every single day, and Bayer was able to say, because he he'd been uh, briefed very, very carefully in advance, to show that 
this was absolute rubbish. It was totally untrue. Um, but he saw through Hitler and he said it was absolutely a terrible shock uh, that um, Hitler was just simply not interested in the soldiers, in their fate or anything like that. It was purely in a question of pride. And he said it was it, his whole life was almost turned upside down. And what was interesting that Schmundt, General Schmundt, who was um, Hitler's chief adjutant, realized and Bayer was supposed to be flown back into the Stalingrad Kessel uh, to give them sort of Hitler's decision. Uh, but he wouldn't allow Bayer to go because he knew perfectly well that Bayer had now changed his attitude and therefore was no longer going to be supportive of Hitler. He was no longer Hitler-Hurig. So that was the uh, that that was the moment. But I mean, the way that he described that the details of the whole of that meeting was for me absolutely fascinating. I, I I wonder if if I can get a little bit from both of you about the the the, the impact of writing this book on you, and uh, Anthony. In your case, you know the 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 smell, the 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 actual um, the way in which the the quotidian way in which those people lived once the city had been encircled, the civilians and how they managed to survive. I wonder what kind of impact that made on you, reading it and then reading the research and then having to write it. Well, the food is is everything. In warfare, I'm afraid food is almost everything. Ernst Junger in Paris, looking out from the Tour d'Argent restaurant, restaurant, sort of said, in war, in war, food is power. And he was absolutely right. Um, in Stalingrad, I mean, you, I, 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 the effect on me was after reading those articles, after reading all of those reports and so forth, you know, it was just to look at a plate of food and think what that would have meant for 10 people, not just one. Uh, and so that actually carried on for a long time afterwards. And it, it's very occasionally still sort of hits me again, you know, you just sort of think about what it really meant. Uh, the idea that sort of, you know, if you could actually catch a cat, lucky enough to catch a rat or uh, a dog or whatever it might be, and uh, and cook it. I mean, there were children. Do you realize that there were uh, there were sometimes about ten thousand civilian survivors who had been trapped all the way through the battle. Uh, One thousand of them were children. They were completely catatonic at the end. They were feral. They had lived off uh, either getting uh, um, filling the water bottles of German soldiers in exchange for a scrap of bread, uh, because of course the Germans had a shortage of water, uh, and Soviet snipers had been ordered to shoot down these Russian children uh, so that the Germans simply couldn't get the water. That gives you an idea of the sheer pitilessness of the fighting. And Margaret, when you're writing something about the end of a war, obviously a different war in, in, in the case of your book, to what extent were you acutely aware that these people were completely detached at one level from what had gone before in the, in the previous years and, and that what they were, were doing was just looking down on those people who had been the victims or perhaps not? I think not. I mean, that was always the, the, the accusation that John Maynard Keynes meant, made, that they sat in their overheated rooms, you know, making a mess of things. But I think they were acutely aware. I mean, Lloyd George had had two sons who'd fought in the First World War and, and a son-in-law who'd been at Gallipoli. And Paris was, was evidently suffering from the war. I mean, virtually everyone was wearing black or had black armbands. They'd had to cut down the chestnut trees in the Champs-Élysées for fuel. And you could go up to the front, and a lot of the people who were there at the conference did. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a day's trip there and back. I mean, you could go up and you could see. And at that stage, of course, the front was very raw. It was basically as it had been left, and there were makeshift graves everywhere. So I think they were 
very conscious of what it was they were dealing with. And I think what I what I began to appreciate was just the pressure. I mean, these were negotiations, and we've all been in negotiations. You know, you have to negotiate your salary or something, but not with that sort of pressure where you feel the weight of the world is trembling on on your shoulders, and that if you make a mistake, something even worse may be about to happen. And it was so huge compared to the last similar um, peace conference, which was the the Vienna Congress, which was completely much, much smaller in scale. Well, Vienna was European. And really what the Paris Peace Conference was, it was international. I mean, the United States was there. There were Latin American countries there. Parts of the British Empire, my own country, Canada, were there more or less in their own right. Japan was there. China was there. Thailand was there. Now, this was this was much more international in Vienna, and of course, what they also had to deal with, which they hadn't had to deal with in 1814 and 1815, was public opinion. They were being watched. There was something like 700 journalists in Paris, and so what they were doing was a subject of intense scrutiny. Okay, two very brief questions, final questions for for both of you. Uh, both of these books that you've written changed your your lives uh, pretty much. You've admitted that. What books have you read that have changed your lives, Sir Anthony? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, or even transformed you a little bit, if not changed your life. Well, I think certainly Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate. Um, I have to uh, acknowledge that one in terms of the way that the political um, analysis of the role of Stalinism, the role of the Soviet Union in the Second World War, um, impinged on his life and, of course, in fact, in a way, wrecked his life. I mean, it was the sheer stress of not being able to publish um, Life and Fate that actually probably brought on the stomach cancer which killed him. Um, and sort of, if you like, in a very personal sense, um, I studied under John Keegan at Sandhurst and his book, The Face of Battle, um, really did, and we all owe him a huge debt for that, really did start, if you like, the upending of military history, uh, of looking at it very much from the chaos of the front line uh, rather than from the view of the generals in their chateau behind the lines. Mm. Margaret McMillan. Well, when I was an undergraduate, I read Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August and then various other things she'd written. And I thought this is – and I, you know, I thought I'll never be able to do it. But I thought this is the way I'd like to try and write history because it's fun. It's vivid. She gives you a sense of the personalities. And there have been other books along the way. I mean, the, many of them history. I mean, I thought Ian Kershaw's biography of Hitler was absolutely extraordinary. Yes and really transformed my view of, of both Hitler and Nazi Germany. But novels too. I mean, Anthony men- mentioned Life and Fate, and, and I think great novels can do the same. You, they can switch your, your, your sense and, and, and your, your, your feeling for a period. And I always tell my graduate students they must read novels from the period because they will get a sense of the period which they won't get out of just reading history. So, so that's one. That was my next question. What advice would you give to to a young student of history if what they wanted to do was become professional historians? So, you, that that's one that you've already said. Read novels of the of, of the era, Anthony. What about you? Oh, structure um, is the most important thing of all. Don't start writing. I mean, whether it's your PhD thesis, whatever it might be, until you've finished your research. And um, don't even attempt to do your opening until it's absolutely clear in your mind. Because if you have to go back and keep on rewriting the start, you will never get the the right rhythm, the right voice or anything like that. Um, And I think that's one of the most important pieces of advice one can give. Margaret? 
read as widely as possible. And that means not just reading novels, but also reading in other disciplines. I mean, I found my thesis at Oxford was on the British in India, what they thought and what they felt about India and what they thought they were doing there. And I read quite a lot of anthropology, which I found very helpful in trying to understand group mentality, but also read other histories. You know, I, I get so depressed when I meet graduate students who say, I'm a specialist in, you know, this particular valley in Wales or this particular town in Germany, which is all very well. And you, they may be saying very interesting things about it, but they've got to read widely. I mean, they should be reading outside their period and outside their area because you always get something from doing that. Fabulous advice. Thank you both very much indeed. Margaret McMillan and Sir Anthony Beaver. Thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for supporting this podcast series and the awards ceremony. The winner of this year's prize will be announced on the 19th of November. Next time, we're going to take a walk on the wild side of nonfiction when we're joined by the 2009 and 2014 prize winners, Philip Hoare and Helen MacDonald. Do sign up for the latest newsletter updates on our website, www.thebaileygiffordprize.com co.uk and follow us on social media at BG Prize on Twitter and at Bailey Gifford Prize on Facebook. Till the next time. Bye-bye. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.